Well, just an opportunity um, while Cheryl was praying, she mentioned, uh, come and see and go and tell. So it's very fitting that I'm uh, just going to take a moment just to invite Ashley up. Um, Ashley is someone who's uh, going to, has been and going to continue to go and tell in her own high school. And she just wants to give you an update on the Youth Alpha really quickly. So, Thank you. Good morning. Um, so in my school, we've been running this thing called Youth Alpha. And for those of you that don't know, Youth Alpha is a video series that we have for um, kids. It's basically, it's open to Christians and non-Christians. And they basically just ask questions about if you want to pursue a life with Jesus. And so we've had two weeks so far. And this week, we're going up on our third. So, so for the first week, we had nobody come, unfortunately. But we prayed about it, and the second week we had five people attend, which was really awesome. And um, for this week coming up, we have three other people who have agreed to come as well. So if the last group comes and this other three, we'll have eight people coming, which is super amazing. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for praying for us, and please keep praying for um, people to really see the questions and think about them outside of Youth Alpha, and for us to be good leaders. Thank you. Seconds. Just stay up here. She's Can I pray for you? I think that it is only fitting to continue to pray for this. As I know many of us will be praying about this throughout the week, but I just want to. Maybe Sean, you want to come up? Will you? Uh, will you join me in praying for her? Only if it, I can add one more minute. <laughs> Pastor, a microphone. Just a minute. <laughs> you did. So it's been postponed a few weeks, you know, time after time. And then they're ready to go and nobody shows up. What would you do? Give up? Maybe? Feel like it? They had pizza ready. So instead of just uh, giving up, they went out and gave it away and said, see you next week. And that's who came. Proud of you. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for Ashley and uh, the other girls that are leading this at Earl of March. I pray, Lord, that you would be in a powerful way working in that school, um, that you surround them with, uh, with your presence and that you would protect them, keep them safe and sound. And this is not the only youth alpha that's going on. I pray, Father, for the other ones that are going on in the city that some of our youth as well are a part of. We lift that up to you. Keep it going strong, Father. Build your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Very encouraging. Also, I just want to say um, thank you to the worship team for leading us in those songs. Um, I think one of the things that you, right from the very beginning there, kind of tapped into is this idea of, of asking for revival, revive us. And... Um, and then just the last song there, Glory in the Highest. I mean, did you not feel the sense of the Spirit in here during that song? The Lord is, is, the Lord is really drawing us closer to Him. And um, that's only a taste of it. And I, I'm so encouraged and so excited of what God is doing in this place. And um, one of the things, uh, in 2015, we did a survey on, um, on the life of the church here. And one of the things was that... Um, our, the, the sense of, of the way our services were going was one of our lowest categories, interestingly. 
I think if we did that survey again, I think that there would be a difference. And one of those things that, that made it low was a lot of people that took that survey that when asked the question, do I prepare myself uh, to come to church? In other words, do I just show up or, or am I mentally thinking about it? Am I praying ahead of time? And then hearing uh, Cheryl, you say like on Wednesday, God was already stirring you. What am I going to be praying for? You've come prepared. And I would challenge each and every one of us to be like, this is, is supposed to be an offering of praise, a sacrifice of praise. And, and to come prepared to, to lay down your heart, to lay down your burdens. And this is the place where we get to collectively do it. And, and the more we do that, I think the level of, of the spiritual growth that we're going to see will continue to escalate. And it's just so exciting. So I encourage you in that. Keep going. Amen. So we're, we're in our series um, on, on the free Methodist ethos, this idea of, of the major characteristics, the key things that, that make free Methodism what it is. Now, we talked last time about three really important concepts, and I gave a bit of an illustration to talk about that. This morning, we're going to talk about something uh, equally as important. But before I do that, I want to tell you about a time in history. And at the end, I'm going to ask you to guess about what time in history you think I'm talking about, okay? So here's a few of the points just to give you a picture. The people of this day are losing interest in religion. Their fighting of doctrines and the differences between churches has left a bad taste in many mouths. The writing of some of the most influential atheists were on the side tables or in almost every home. And if not in their home, their books were talked about and the topic of conversation at work and stores. There's a massive gap between the rich and the poor. The people of faith looked on their society and saw nothing but heathenism. Godlessness ruled the day from their vantage point. Science was pushing religion further and further to scramble to remain relevant. Any trace of Christian truth was quickly leaving the textbooks of science. The best Christian authors of the day were doing their best to defend their faith, but sin seemed to remain rampant nonetheless. They were appealing to morality and right living, but the lifestyle of sin seemed to keep calling people above the faint whisper of truth. So the question is, what time in history am I talking about? How many of you thought I was talking a description about today? Put up your hand if you thought it was today. Okay. What, if you, what did you thought it was somewhere between the 50s to the 80s, somewhere in that range? Okay, how many of you thought maybe between 1900 to 1950, somewhere in that range? How many of you guys thought 1700? Okay, you're tracking with me. Someone from this congregation just recently gifted me a wonderful set of books called The History of Methodism in three volumes, written by Abel Stevens. This man um, lived in the 1800s, and, and in it, he describes the setting in which free Methodism or Methodism or Wesleyan's thought was birthed. Now, if you remember, this is, this is a history, so, you know, if you have to pin your eyelids open or whatever you need to do, just bear with me. It is important. So there's something that has happened is the, the, the Great Reformation, and, and now we're a few, almost a hundred and some years, almost 200 years out from that moment, the church is now not what even Luther would have wanted. It's something that's not got a lot of life in it. 
It's a time in history where philosophers are, are just degradating Christianity and, and Voltaire basically saying something along the lines of, of that, you know, Christianity will be dead by the time I'm dead. That didn't happen. And then he makes another quote basically saying it's going to be dead in 100 years. No. This is the time in which Methodism is birthed. Here's some of the stuff that Stephen says in his, is in his book in the first chapter. The encyclopedist had attempted a design of radication from the circle of sciences, every trace of Christian truth. And the polite writers of France, headed by Voltaire and Rousseau, had decked the corrupt doctrines, uh, doctrines of the day with attractions of eloquence, poetry, and humor, and satire until they swept over the nation. Another part, it says, the age of reason was raging all around in England. The upper classes would use church as a place to show off their status. They laughed at piety and they prided themselves of being above fanaticism of religion. Lower classes were mostly uneducated, illiterate, and were abandoned to their vices as a common way to clear their mind of a hard lifestyle. Wesley looked at this time he was living in. He looked at the state of the world, and this is what he had to say. This is a man whose uttermost conviction is that the world needs Jesus. This is what he, when he looked out his front porch, this is what he saw. What is the present characteristic of the English nation? It is ungodliness. Ungodliness is our universal, our constant, our peculiar character. Such was the, this was the condition of England at the time. This was the time when Wesley storms out into England, not to revive the church back to fighting over doctrines, not to revive church people to talk about all the stuff they, they needed to do, but what was key, as it says, but to recall the masses to their Bibles. Why did I share a brief history of the 1700s from this standpoint? Because so many of us, I think you can actually see the similarities to our day. We have philosophers, uh, atheists writing books that are trying to basically say there's no such way that Christianity can be true. It's talked about in the news. It's on, on people's bookshelves. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others. It's a time and an age where if, if most Christians looked out their front door, sat on their porch, they would declare... Ungodliness, that's our, that's our pastime, is ungodliness. Now, we would think that we're living in an age unlike any with regards to sin and ungodliness, but ungodliness is ungodliness. Whether you dress it up in anarchist tattoos or cover it up with upper-class, stuffy, religious, prideful tradition, if there's not a conversion of the heart, then it's the same spirit at work. Wesley looked at his day and saw ungodliness ruling, and he chose to travel all around England calling people back to Christ, back to the Bible, back to faith, and is this time in history is also known as the Great Awakening. This is a time in history where some of the greatest revivals in England all took place, all while the best philosophers of the word were trying to destroy Christianity, all while ungodliness ruled the day, all while the upper class put on piety as a way of showing themselves better than others. All while during this, he went out to the, in the trenches. He went out to the towns. He went to the countryside and preached a transformation of life in Christ. And it spawned a revival 
in one of the probably the hardest grounds you would imagine to see revival come. Okay, history lesson over. Speaking of calling people to their Bibles, if you can now turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. We're just going to look at one verse, and this was the same verse that, that, that Wesley uh, preached a sermon on called the means of grace, which is what we're talking about this morning. This one verse was the, the topical verse for his, his sermon, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It's, uh, if you go to Matthew and one back from that, you'll find it. And this is what it says. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Wesley preached this from the King James and it says... It talks about instead of gone away from my ordinances and not kept them. So he asked this question. What are the decrees or ordinances that span past the Old Testament and the New Testament that are almost set and fixed? Are there things today that we could stop doing and walk away from that God would say, come back to? Now, in the Old Testament times, there, a lot of them would be assuming he's talking about the law and all that. But here we have to ask our question. If we're reading the Bible today, we're saying, okay, what would God call us back to? Are there, are there things that trans, translate all over time, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever? Are those things? If God is looking for his people to return to him, the question is, how do we Return to him. And even the people even ask that in Malachi. They say, how do, we, how do we return to him? Now listen to this statement. And listen to its similarity in the New Testament. Return to me, and I will return to you. It says in John 15, more poetically, maybe even more hopeful, remain in me, and I will remain in you. So the question of the time of the people of Malachi is a question we have today. How do we remain in God? How do we remain in God? In other words, what are the things that God has initiated that transcend law and time and are essential to a life in faith with God to make us vibrant in Christ? In other words, how should we abide? Wesley used a term called means of grace. He didn't make up this term. This was a term that was used in the church at the time. What does means of grace mean? It means there's grace over here that God has, and we're over here, and something works between us and God's grace for us to actually encounter it. Now, this is not a set list. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about prayer, scripture, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the three things that in his message on the means of grace he talks about. There are many. We could talk about others. I mean, even in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, it talks about people looked out. They saw, this, they saw the world that was made and they were without excuse because God has made himself known through the stars, mountains, valleys, rivers. But what we're talking about is 
something that allows us to experience God's grace. Wesley, at one point, he says, they are outward actions that produces an inward grace. An outward action producing inward grace. We know this principle to be true already. Think about this for a second. This idea that if you're going to do something that's outward and it's going to produce an inward grace. We know this, this is not something that's unknown to us. Think about Acts 20.35 that says it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I see a young man sitting a wall, sitting on the side of a wall at a Max Milk. Now it's actually um, uh, on Terry Fox there, but it's now known as Circle K. Anybody seen that they've made that change? Uh, now I have two Ks to keep track of my life. I've got Circle K and Special K. You don't want to mix those up. Um, and I'm really trying to figure out what's with the letter K that's so important. Um, by the way, I also said that in my head just like Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal with Ks anyways? Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to work through my failed career as a stand-up comedian. and Sorry. Anyway, so I see this young man, and he's sitting on a wall. And uh, I, I notice he's got a sign that's saying he's hungry. And so, so I'm like, okay. So I go and ask him. And I say, you know, are you hungry? <laughs> Well, he has a sign. Um, so anyway, so he says, yes, I am. Oddly enough, I've seen people that have signs that say hungry and all they want is money. They actually don't want food, but that's another story. Anyways, so this guy says, yes, I would love some food. So I ask him what he wants, and he gives a very detailed order of McDonald's. It was, you know, no pickles, extra onion. I was like, oh, I better take notes here. So I, I went in, I got him the food, and I came back out, and I got myself some food, and I sat and ate with him. And I walked away feeling a little bit lighter. I walked away feeling just at peace that, that God was able to use me. We had an interesting conversation. It didn't lead to him being saved or anything, but it was an interesting conversation, as they often are. <laughs> but you know what? That truth is there. An outward sign produced in me an inward grace. And so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about times in which, in our Christian life, we do something external. Now, you might say, oh, we're going to pray. Well, that's in our head. But it's talking about external words that produce in us an inward grace that God gives to us. And chief among these, Wesley said, were prayer, reading of Scripture, and taking of the Lord's Supper. Prayer, reading of Scripture, and the Lord's Supper. Now, here's the first problem with this list is it's incomplete, and I know that. I don't have time to go through the entire list of ways we can experience God. And the second, and this is the more, this is the more troubling problem, is we can forget that these are called means of grace, and we can start treating them as an end. The end is supposed to be the grace we get from God. But somehow in religious life, we have a tendency to take the things that we do and make them an end. And there is a great, great warning in Scripture about this. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 11, 13 says this. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Isaiah goes on to say, and he says that for an offering to have meaning, he says, wash and make yourselves clean, in verse 16, take your evil deeds out of my sight, out of my sight, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, and encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. If these means of grace, if these things that we do, these active things that we do become a way of serving ourselves, Wesley said they are less than nothing and vanity, and that if they do not actually conduce to the knowledge and love of God, they are not acceptable in his sight. The means of grace have to be coupled with the Spirit. If they are completely only human, then they are just words, they're just a book, and they're just some food. The Spirit brings life to these things. If we're serving ourselves, it is amazing. Out in the world, you would never use prayer, Bible study, and taking of the Lord's table to get recognition. It's not a way of doing it. But somehow, when you're in a group, when you're in a church, and that's the norm, and that's the culture, there's a tendency for us, for our hearts to be drawn towards the approval and opinion and status that we can get from other people by doing the very things that are part of our culture, praying, reading our Bible, and taking the Lord's Supper. If the Israelites did this with the law and with the burnt offerings, don't be surprised that we could do this too. I think we would be a little proud to say that that wouldn't be possible. We are to pray, read scripture, and take communion out of the fullness of love of Christ and what he has done for us. These are not a means to salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. These are ways in which we understand the grace of God in a deeper way. We are told in the Psalm, Psalm 27 says, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart to wait for the Lord. Two young boys stand on a porch, okay? Just picture with me this, this, this analogy with me. And they're sitting on the porch, and their dad is there. These young boys, they're with their dad, and he says, all right, kids, I'm going off to work. I am going off to work. Um, wherever he works, we haven't figured that out yet, but that's okay. So he's off to work, and he says, stay here. Wait here. I put an instruction sheet on the table for you guys to look at. I've I put some food in the fridge for you guys to have. And I've wrote down my number of where you can reach me. And the dad goes, okay, you guys good? So then he goes and leaves. And you can picture for the next, you know, 10 minutes, the kid's just sitting there going, okay, what do we do? A couple 12-year-old boys just twiddle their thumbs and can bounce their knees only so much. Where one of them decides, all right, this is, I, pff, waiting all around all day for dad come on this is awful so he's like you know what I'm gonna go on a little adventure on my own and he, he takes off and he goes out into the woods and he he starts he, he thinks in his head you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna 
find my own way to the path where my dad usually comes home, and I'll be there, and I'll, I'll wave at him on his way by, and he'll stop and pick me up, and I'll go find my own way. So that boy goes off, and he does that. The other boy sits, and instead of twiddling his thumbs anymore, he starts, he goes, and he, he, he picks up the letter on his table from his dad, and he's like, oh, okay, there's actually lots for me to do here. We're going to go, um, oh, yeah, he said, uh, what did he say? He said, oh, when I got home, we'd go fishing. And then in the letter, there's, there's all this stuff about, okay, um, you know, make sure you tie some new fishing lures. And so he goes, and he ties some new fishing lures. He comes back, and he says, oh, what else am I supposed to do while I'm waiting here? Oh, okay, um, uh, got to get the tackle box. And he searches around. He can't find the tackle box. So he goes, and he picks up the phone. He calls his dad. He has access to his dad, and his dad promised he could he calls, and his dad tells him exactly where the tackle box is, and he goes back, and he starts working away again at getting everything ready. And then on the way home, the one boy, his dad comes home just as he said, and he's there, and he's ready, and he's waiting. He's waited on, on his dad all day long. He had the food that was in the fridge, and he felt satisfied knowing that his dad provided for him. He's got everything ready, and they're off to go fishing together. The other son decided he was going to wait by doing his own way, and he goes off, and he went out into the woods. And in fact, by the time it gets dark, he realized that by going his own way, he's missed his father coming home. He never got to the path he was hoping to. And in the end, he's probably missed the fishing trip that his father promised. Now the question is, what are these two boys? Well, the one is, is the many people like to go on their own path. We, we see God, and we hear about God, and we like, I can't wait on this guy to just show up. So I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go down my path into the woods and do whatever I want. And I'm going to find my own way to where my father's going to come back and, and my version of heaven. And you go off on your own way. And then there's another way. But it's talking about wait on the Lord. What does wait mean? This, this, this kid wasn't idly just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. He took and he ate. He read the letter and he did what his father had asked. He was being prepared and waiting on the Lord, waiting on his father. There could be a third son in this story, the one that decided he was going to stay at home but not read the letter, not call his dad if he needed something, and not go to the fridge to take the food that had been provided to give him sustenance. Ask yourself, which one of those seems more like the fool? The one that went off on his own way? Or the one that stayed at home while everything was provided and he didn't take advantage of any of it? Scripture says to wait on the Lord. We could go over many of the scriptures to talk about why prayer and reading scripture and doing the Lord's Supper are important. I mean, Luke 11 says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find me. Knock and the door will be opened. For anyone who asks receives. He who seeks me and finds me. He who knocks, the door will be opened. In scriptures, you, you see that in Acts 17, you see that the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians. In chapter 17, it says, For they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And many of the Jews believed, as also did a number of the prominent Greek women and the Greek men. In other words, you open this scripture, and it transforms your life. 
Regarding the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Each one of those three things are times when we get to meet with Christ, where we get to experience his grace. Isn't it rather interesting then that these means that have been given to us, where the world goes off and tries to find their own way, We've been given something to experience Christ, to keep our, our walk with him alive. Many of us are actually like the third son who sat there and did nothing. A recent LifeWay research study found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. Almost one in five never read the Bible. Essentially, the same amount of people who read their Bible every day in church, there's an exact same number of those who absolutely never read it. LifeWay also found that even though we're not reading the Bible, they found that 90% of people say that they desire to please and honor Jesus and to do his will. Regarding these two stats, Christianity Today, they had this to say, and I quote, it is striking that while most of us desire to please Jesus, few of us take time to check the Bible to find out if we're actually doing it. Clearly, there's a disconnect. What about prayer? 1,500 evangelicals were surveyed in a 2014 study, and they said this, that only 31% actually set aside substantial time to pray each day. 42% say they find it difficult to find time on a regular disciplined basis to pray and read their Bible. And interestingly, what they started to figure out in these stats was something that was, is more telling of our culture now than any other, is that it seems that prayer is now something we, we, um, we do on the go. We don't carve out time for prayer as a, as a chunk on its own anymore. Most people talk about their prayer life as being something they do while they just go about their day, which is great in one sense. But if we're always praying between home and the bus stop or on the bus and work, how much time are we really waiting on the Lord? If prayer is something we just carve out a few moments in between transportation, how much is it really a part of our life? Are we getting the grace out of it that God has offered to us? Faith seems to be something that we do from here to there. 60% say that they do it while on the move, while using transport. Combine that with the number of people who typically don't pray at all, and you have a large majority of us either not praying or simply praying on the go. And I, and I need to confess something to you guys is that I'm, for the most part, I've realized over the, just the busyness of life that I've been more like the 60%. The majority of people who have found more time and personal prayer on the move than a set-aside time. I mean, I have the time on Wednesday morning with the men to pray. Um, it can be women, too, to pray for the youth. But I found that I was getting into this habit where I was always praying from here to there. I'd get in my car and I'd go somewhere. Well, that's a time I can pray. Or, or, or I'm, I'm, it almost always seemed rushed. And I looked at my life, and just this week, even looking, I'm going, that's just the habit of my life. I'm so rushed that prayer is also rushed. And if prayer is a means of grace... 
then I'm the one who's missing out. I'm missing out on the grace of God. How much waiting are we doing if we're always moving? God has set before you all a banquet table. A banquet table of grace. And I'm talking to myself right now. How do we so easily walk by this table of grace to get back to the game on our phone or the alert of another text or an email or a message? How many times do we walk by the table of grace laid before us and walk straight to the busyness of the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing? And Wesley's standing there saying, I've looked at the scriptures. I've, I see the importance of prayer and reading of scripture and taking the Lord's Supper. And he says, carve out the time. This is not a way to, to puff yourself up. This is a way to experience the grace of your Father who wants to connect and commune with you. There's a table of grace before you. Do you partake or do you walk away to the next busy thing on your life? Why share all of this? Because in the same setting of the 1700s, the same call to pray, the same call to read scripture again was the same hope that Wesley had that absolutely transformed England through revivals in the countryside. Getting back to praying and getting back to understanding the Bible was not just a simple way of, of, of improving your own life, but the entire nation of England. If we want to hope for our world out there, and we go out and we offer them a table of grace that we don't partake of, how do we ever expect them to take part in the table of grace with us? Church, it's time for us to get on our knees and pray. Search his scriptures. See the truth that is there. Experience his grace day to day so that we are energized, prepared, and ready to go into the countryside, into our homes, into our, our neighborhoods, into our jobs, into our, into our coffee shops and share the grace that we can lay that before others and say, come and take the grace of the Lord with me. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that you would speak to us through these means of grace. Lord, we didn't get a lot of time to talk about your Lord's Supper, but it too is a way of experiencing the death and resurrection of Jesus tangibly in our lives so that it can produce in us hope and peace, willingness to want to seek out the resurrection in the next life ourselves. God, would you be for us this morning, continue to lay the banquet table of grace. And Lord, I pray that we would stop being so busy that we walk by an abundant feast and go back to the things that we just fill our days with. Help us to be a people of prayer Help us to be a people who read their scriptures. Help us to be a people who know what you say and do what you want us to do, Lord. Let us not be like that third son who didn't go off and didn't go do what you said, but just stayed there thinking he was fine, just being at home, doing nothing at all. Lord, I pray that that image would challenge us to choose to follow you, to reach out to you, to pray and understand who you are. May we partake of the table of grace this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, church, we're going to stand for one final song. In the reflection after Easter, and how incredible that is. Here's uh, In Christ Alone. Thank you.
just uh, just a thought. Um, if I can be as bold, is to say that if you if you've been a Christian and you've been the third son just sitting there, there's love in this room for you this morning, uh, and I would challenge you to. to to step out and come to the front, not just because it, it, it's a way of, of uh, setting yourself apart, but because the principle is this, that if you do nothing within the 48 hours after hearing something that you want to do, you'll typically never do it. Or it'll take a long time to get back to that place where you get challenged to want to do it again. And so if this morning the Lord has directly challenged you and you know that this is an area you've struggled with, and, and I'm not promising that it's going to be easy. I'm not going to promise that prayer is going to come naturally. I'm not going to promise that, that the desire to read the scriptures is just going to, all of a sudden going to be there. But what I'm going to promise is that if you meet him there, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Come to me and I will come to you. And the challenge is this. If you've been that third son, come. If you've been that third daughter, if that works for the analogy better for you, come and say, Lord, I want to seek your face. I want to know. I want to pray. I want to understand your word. And I want to commit to doing that more fully and to stop walking by the table of grace. If that's you this morning, I would boldly say, come out, step out, and step in and then receive the table of grace that's laid before you.
Just like you to come and pray for us. Thanks, Ken. 